Words cannot express what a delight uh, it is to be with you here today for so many reasons. Uh, First and foremost, that it is the Lord's Day to gather together for uh, worship and covenant renewal. And then to see uh, so many familiar faces, to uh, reconnect with old friends, some of which uh, I did before the beginning of the service, some of which will continue afterwards. It's just a great, great delight uh, to be with you this day. Some of you folks I haven't seen in uh, 17 years. Uh, Mark and I go back uh, 26 years. If I recall correctly, it was in 1995 that he was beginning his journey toward Reformed Presbyterianism. And he arrived on our doorstep at Christ Presbyterian Church in Flower Mound, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with his characteristic eagerness and enthusiasm. If I recall correctly, our sister Lisa was less than enthused to be at a Presbyterian church, and she was there under what was tantamount to silent protest. (laughs) But uh, before long, she warmed up to our strange ways, and they and their family became integral parts of our communal life and served the Lord with joy and gladness. Uh, Mark began to served the church in a variety of capacities. I remember in particular a class he taught on who else? Uh, Jonathan Edwards. And uh, eventually Mark was ordained as an elder, and we served together on the same session. And we had uh, some great times, great memories as friends, as fellow elders. But eventually we entered into a very difficult season, strained and broken relationships among the leaders of the church, particularly between Mark and me. And I believe at one point we became about as estranged from one another as two brothers in Christ could be. That was 18 years ago. If you had told me 18 years ago that I would live to see the day where I would count Mark Trigstad not only as a good friend, but I would be preaching at his ordination service, I would have told you that you were out of your mind. It's just been remarkable to Mark and me, to Lisa and my wife, Kim, what God has done over the intervening years. A friendship that was destroyed, was rebuilt, and esteem and affection that had waxed cold have been renewed. I cannot put into words what a profound joy it is to be with you here today, especially with you, Mark and Lisa, to celebrate with you, to be with not only my good friend, Mark Trigstead, but now my fellow minister of the gospel, Mark Trigstead. Back to those early days of getting to know Mark, he was in his 
early 40s at the time, I would guess, and he talked about one day he hoped to go to seminary and perhaps even be a pastor, and I would nod and smile, <laughs> but inwardly think yet another middle-aged man frustrated with his career, pining after <laughs> some pipe dream that will never be realized. But he did it. He actually did it. Here we are this day. Now, I'm not as old as Mark is, <laughs> and I want that noted for the record. But I'm beginning to wonder, I have, a, I have some years left, I think, but I wonder, you know, when will I just hang up the cleats? There's a soccer reference for you, Jordan, at <laughs> no extra charge. But as I think about my eventual retirement, I am humbled and challenged that this brother, who is older than I am, <laughs> is just getting started. And I know I say some things in jest, but it really is something to ponder especially for those of us further along in our earthly sojourn, what our usefulness might be in our latter years. I neglected to mention something a moment ago by way of an important aside. I don't doubt that there are those of you here today who are in the midst of strained and broken relationships. There are wounds, there are feelings of betrayal, and you're wondering whether you can ever recover that which has been lost. Mark and I, we are delighted to serve as living breathing examples of what can come about through the grace of God and the passage of time. And your worst case scenario, even if it doesn't come about in this life, it will surely be accomplished in the world to come. Well, with that, by way of a somewhat lengthy introduction, I want to set before you this brief text, and really it's the last part of this brief text that I want our focus to be, uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am bound, I'm suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we join together in profound gratitude for your mercy and your grace, especially your reconciling mercy. We thank you that you've brought 
this congregation and this dear brother and his family to this day. We pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have a very distinct recollection from early childhood. I was a young boy of six or seven, and we had an orange tabby cat named Julian, named after my great-grandfather, Julian Bringhurst. And as is the habit of cats, Julian liked to position himself in the yard and wait very patiently and crouch down, and when he saw a bird come, he would pounce and devour his prey. So what to do with a problem like that? As many of you know, the time-honored solution to that is to bell the cat. Uh, that is to say, you put a little bell on the cat's collar, and in theory at least, as that cat begins to move across the line toward his prey, the bell rings and startles the bird, and the bird flies away. So that's what we did. But do you know what? Julian learned to run without ringing <laughs> the bell. So he continued to wait and pounce and devour. I believe that belling the cat is a temptation that confronts Christian churches that when confronted with the unfettered freedom of the Word of God, there is an instinct to curtail that freedom, to circumscribe and domesticate the Word of God. And so as this brother begins his life as an ordained minister of the gospel, I thought it might be appropriate uh, to encourage, even to embolden him to preach the Word of God freely and fully and to caution you against belling the cat. You read throughout the history of redemption, you are, of course, struck by the, the power and the freedom of the Word of God to do whatever it wills calling forth the creation by the word of his power. Uh, the declaration in Jeremiah is not my word. Like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Uh, the familiar lines in Isaiah 55, whereas the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Hebrews 4, verse 12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Of Paul's declaration in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel 
for it is the power of, self, of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the, the Jew and then for the Gentile. In our text, we have a uh, brief, truncated declaration of the gospel in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And then we learn that uh, Paul, as a messenger of this gospel, is imprisoned, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word itself is unbound. So we have this great contrast between bound apostle and unbound word. And the fact is accentuated that the Word of God enjoys something of a free reign. It goes wherever it wills. This freedom of the Word of God should be embodied and reflected in the proclamation of that Word. Whatever opposition or persecution may come, even imprisonment of the Word of God is free in its movement. Uh, we certainly see this throughout the book of Acts, first in the preaching of Peter, then the preaching of Paul. You remember Paul's uh, great declaration to the Ephesian elders. He says he hasn't hesitated to hold back anything that's profitable for him, nor has he shrunk back from declaring the whole counsel of God. And this pattern that was begun in the book of Acts has continued throughout the history of the Christian church. Faithful and courageous preaching has always been met with venomous hostility. This should be expected. This is not anomalous. I sometimes like to point this out to people who are longing with nostalgia for some sort of Christian America that we've lost. The New Testament assumption everywhere is that we are a church in the wilderness. We are sojourners. We are living in exile, and we should expect hostility from the world. Curiously, opposition also arises from an unexpected quarter where there is an effort to restrict the proclamation of the word, or as I've put it, to bell the cat. And that opposition comes from you, the church of Jesus Christ, the very people we would expect to receive that word in its fullness. They restrict, they Oppose, they domesticate. It's also widely attested in the scriptures, so in a sense it should not be a surprise. Do you remember what Paul says later in 2 Timothy? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off 
into myths. I'm going to make a guess that the Dallas I left 16 years ago is pretty much the Dallas of today. With this veneer of evangelical Christianity, little by way of depth, much by way of baptizing of the idols of the culture and people gathering around themselves, those who will tell them what they want to hear. I was reminded of the remark of Roger Lundeen, as megachurches running their seeker services have discovered, you can always draw a crowd in America when you flatter and beguile your audience. There will always be a market for snake oil versions of the gospel that promise the bliss of heaven without the shame of the cross. You may remember a very dramatic example of the people of God refusing to receive the word. Do you remember Stephen's proclamation of the word in Acts chapter 7? And he ends with these words that were surely not uh, endearing him to his audience. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Do you remember some of the descriptions of how these fine covenant people responded? They ground their teeth and they shouted and they plugged their ears. This image of the grinding of teeth and the shouting and the plugging of ears. No, I'm not referring to ruling elders. I'm referring to these people under the preaching of Stephen. They were absolutely unwilling to receive the word of God. And you know the rest of the story. They stoned him to death. Now that is extreme to be sure, but it is an example of God's people unwilling to tolerate the faithful preaching of the Word. And I think we can all imagine scenarios where stopping short of stoning the messenger to death, there is nonetheless a muzzling, a restriction, a belling of the cat. And you, you can think of your own examples. I think, for example, of uh, what Machen said years ago when he was contrasting Christianity with the Protestant liberalism of the day, which he saw as a, a different religion altogether. He said, uh, Christianity is a religion of sin and grace, but liberalism is a religion of morality and uplift. And as I look across the world of American evangelicalism, there is a lot of morality and uplift. Make us feel good. Just tell us what to do. But a gospel minister comes along preaching sin and grace, a condemnation under the wrath of God, our, our only hope being in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, that is resisted. Or think of matters related to marriage and the family, how 
husbands and wives ought to live, how parents should train and discipline their children. Many people don't want to hear that or pick any one of our doctrinal distinctives. You can imagine people resisting that with all their might. But at this point, you say, Pastor, we need to stop you right there. Now, we don't deny for a second what's going on in the broader world of American evangelicalism and the thin veneer of Christianity. But we're Redeemer. And that's why we're at Redeemer. We we love the strong meat of the Word. And we, we crave the whole counsel of God. So we agree with you wholeheartedly about what's going on out there. But you've misjudged your audience. Today, I see. So these things I've been describing, these are other people's sins. Problems from which the good people of Redeemer are largely immune. I don't buy it. I will grant you this, I will throw you a bone, I don't doubt that in certain areas of biblical truth, you are immune from this truncating and muzzling of the Word of God that I'm describing. But that does not mean you are immune in all areas. And in fact, I believe that Reformed Presbyterians are particularly susceptible to this danger. Why? Because you regard yourself as being willing to receive whatever God has to say in His Word, and thereby you are potentially blind to ways in which you are intolerant of the Word of God. You don't flinch at a sermon on predestination or on original sin or the evils of drunkenness, or the judgment of God. So long as the minister leaves undisturbed your sins and your idols, it's as though there's some sort of unspoken agreement that the minister can talk about whatever he wants. He can preach in conformity with our doctrinal standards. so long as he doesn't address your love of money and possessions, your calloused disregard of the poor, your idolatrous conflation of your Christian faith and partisan politics, your contempt for those who are different and other, your disgust with the addicted and the sexually broken, your abusive treatment of your spouse or your children, your angry outbursts, your belligerence, and your mean-spiritedness. So, Pastor, talk to us about that covenant theology. We want to hear all about the forensic character of justification, and we want to know why amillennialism makes the best sense of the biblical data. But just so you understand, there are certain matters of my heart and life that are off limits. You must not go near. 
And the gospel minister who has the temerity not only to broach these matters, but to press them upon the consciences of the congregation. Well, that's it. It's time to bell the cat or get rid of the cat altogether. I, I think this is really a great temptation for Reformed pastors to play it safe, to preach to the choir, to traffic only in biblical content that the congregation readily affirms. And yes, that gives a certain appearance, and even there's reality to this, a biblical depth, but it masks the underlying cowardice and lays bare the fear of man, which is a snare. I think it's useful for ministers and their congregations uh, to reflect on what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. Do you remember that distinction between a pleasing man and pleasing God? Ministers are always commanded to please God, but they're commanded to serve their people. And serving the people sometimes results in pleasing them, but sometimes it results in displeasing them. So your, your goal as a minister can never be to please the congregation. It must be to serve the congregation wherever that may take you. You know, in connection with Mark's ordination, I think it's important to highlight a certain feature of our uh, form of government that does work to safeguard uh, the independence of the ministry of the Word. You know, for all of these years, uh, Mark has been a member of a local church. He's been a member here at Redeemer. He was a member at Christ President Flower Mount, a member of whatever church it was in Colorado, a member of a church before. In, in every single case, he was a member of a local church, and he was accountable to that local body of elders. That changes today. Did you know that? Mark is no longer going to be a member of Redeemer. He is from this point forward a member of North Texas Presbytery. And it's to the Presbytery that he is formally accountable. That's not to deny that there's some kind of informal accountability at the local level, but it is to highlight the fact that a minister's formal accountability in a Presbyterian church is to the presbytery. And I think at times elders can fail to appreciate this feature of Presbyterian government. But, but part of the logic of it is, is that Mark, you know, in a sense, he's not really one of you any longer. He, he's an emissary of God from the outside. He is speaking into this congregation, as does Jordan, as one who's accountable to an outside body of believers. I give you my permission to discuss all this at your next session meeting. And Mark, you let me know how it goes, whether, whether all the elders are on board with this. Well, if the cat is belled, the pulpit ministry loses its pungency, and you're left with nice, 
placid, inoffensive messages that simply reflect the prior convictions of the hearers, doing little good to sins, saints and sinners alike, and not likely to redound to the glory and honor of God. To recall the language of the book of Hebrews, I am convinced of better things in the case of Mark Trigstead. I'm actually pretty optimistic about Mark in this respect, in ways that I would not be optimistic about other ministers that I know. The Mark Trigstead that I know is temperamentally wired so as not to be easily belled. <laughs> the Mark Trigstead that I know will not be easily deterred from proclaiming what he believes to be the Word of God, wherever that may lead him. And I recognize that this strength of Mark's is a strength that will get him into trouble from time to time. The manner of what he says and the particular words may not always be the most felicitous. And I guess all I can say is it takes one to know one. <laughs> and as I've learned over 38 years of marriage and 33 years of gospel ministry, Sometimes my saying the right thing courageously could be said differently or at a different time. So Mark will surely make his missteps as I know I have made mine. But I have every reason to believe that Mark is launching forth into the unashamed and unfettered proclamation of the whole counsel of God, whatever it takes, wherever it takes him. Receive the word from his lips meekly, put it into practice in your lives, and don't even think of trying to bell the cat. Let us pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for your free and powerful and unfettered word, and we acknowledge the many ways in which we, as ministers and congregants, uh, fail to proclaim and receive that word in its fullness. We thank you for the wonderful legacy of this congregation. We thank you for their faithfulness over many years through one transition to another, we pray that you would make this a day of the saints uh, redoubling their commitment to the whole counsel of God and their giving every encouragement to their ministers uh, to proclaim it unflinchingly. This we ask in our Redeemer's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together that uh, extraordinary hymn extolling the free grace of God and can it be?